We are in Haggai. We're doing chapter 2. And if you weren't here for last week and you've never even heard of Haggai especially, then, uh, or you don't know the contents of that book, then you'd be lost without a little bit of a recap, potentially. So I'm going to preface it with something that's not in Haggai and then talk a little bit about Haggai. So this is the word of the Lord to the Israelites who are about to go into exile. Um, from Jeremiah 23, 1 through 8. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our Righteousness." Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. So last week... We began looking at the book of Haggai. We spent a good amount of time just trying to understand the setting for the book because its message is intricately tied to its setting. Um, In the time of Haggai, the prophet, the, uh, the people of the nation of Israel had been released from their Babylonian captivity by Cyrus, the king of Persia. So God had disciplined the Israelites because they had been disobedient. Not for like a little while, but for a long, long time. Hundreds of years, they had been disobedient to God, who, who made them what they were. So he said, I, I will not abide by this. You are going to be disciplined for all of this evil that you've done. So he sends them away. They get totally crushed, conquered by this evil nation called Babylon. And they come and they destroy the temple. And they destroy the land. And they carry off the people. And they've been there for about 70 years. And then in the book of Ezra, we learn that God moved Cyrus, the king of Persia, to release the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. He sent them back and he gave them gold. He gave them silver and animals. And the really cool part, I think he encouraged the people of Persia to provide the Israelites with resources so that they could return to their land and complete the task. That's pretty cool. God actually moved in him. It says that the Spirit of the Lord like moved him to do this. So that's significant. It's an exciting time. It was a time of fulfilled promises. Ezra said that all of this happened, quote, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So that's the word we just read in Jeremiah. All these good things that are going to happen to the, to the Jews coming out of exile, coming back from having received that punishment. God was gathering the Israelites back together, and he promised that they would be fruitful and multiply, that they would have caring leaders, that they would fear no more, that the Davidic kingship would be restored, and that that king would be righteous. 
God said that this new kind of exodus would be so significant that the people would speak of it rather than the exodus led by Moses. So, big deal. Big deal. And yet, when the Israelites returned to build the temple in Jerusalem, their work was halted by adversaries who fought them until they felt like they had no choice but to give up. As a matter of fact, the king actually um, came back and stopped their work. And, and for 16 years, they just kind of sat around and neglected building the temple, even though God had moved in the heart of a foreign king to say, go and do this. God's telling me to let you do this. But they sat around. It remained a stone slab, just like a foundation while they went back to work on their own houses. And how crushing do you think that 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 must have been for them? Because they've been in captivity for 70 years. It hasn't been easy. It hasn't been good. Everything that they were before, all the good things, seemed like really distant memories. And all of a sudden, God's moving. They go back. And you would think, okay, that's exciting. But then they fail. And, and all of the good things that were listed off in Jeremiah, a lot of those promises, didn't look like that was happening. So they must have been thinking, what, what happened? Where were the prophets? Where was the king? Where was the temple? What of the promises of God that we've been given? Is, is this it? Is this the salvation that was promised to us because it sure doesn't look like it. So if that's, if that's true, if this isn't it, then was God, is God really with us anymore? Tough questions. After 16 years of complacency and disappointment, God spoke to Haggai and he told him to confront the people of Israel and to tell them, is this a time for you to sit in your nicely built houses while my house lies in ruins. This is what the God of all the heavenly armies of angels says to you. Consider your ways. Your self-centered lifestyle has come to nothing. You go and you build my house that I may be glorified. That's my own paraphrase, but that's, that's the gist of it. So the spirit, how did they respond? The spirit worked in the hearts of their leaders and in the hearts of the people so that the work began again. The people were moved by the spirit of God and they were working together on the temple of God. So I wanted last week, and I still want to maintain that there are parallels between them and us. As Christians, we've been been called out of of a kind of captivity, right? We were formerly slaves to sin. The New Testament talks about this. We were formerly slaves to sin. We were formerly not a people. Like, none of, we're not related. We weren't friends before we all came together and became this church. God made something out of us. And we were called out of a kind of captivity. And we've been called, now that we're God's people, to, to build the church. They had a temple to build, and we have a church to build. They had the words of the prophets, and we have the words of Christ telling us to, in Matthew 28, go, make disciples of all people, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. So my hope is that we would take these exhortations that are in Haggai 
And that we would take them personally. That we would see them as relevant and necessary for, for us. And that the Spirit of the Lord would cause us to respond by coming together as the church here. To build the church. You know, if you... I'm pretty sure everybody, everybody knows about us at this point in time. Uh, like... We, we came out here from having been in another well-established church that had been around for, I think, more than 20 years. And, well, okay, Reggie was the pastor for 20 years, so that's probably where I was getting that. So that church had been there for a long time, Heritage Baptist, right up the street next to Science Hill. We came from that church feeling like God had really put it in our hearts to do something down here. So we came down here with essentially nothing, and, and it was an exciting time, definitely. When we got together, it was an exciting time, but... It's not easy. It's not easy. And we have hit roadblocks that we didn't anticipate we would hit, like losing a lot of our core group. And, and now we're, we're sit here one, we sit here and we wonder, okay, well, what's next? Like, where's, where's the fire? Where's the, where's the church? Like, and if you haven't noticed, like, there is a church here. But we are still kind of in the beginning phases of this thing. And it was almost like hitting restart, Kind of like what they were doing, where it was like, we did not anticipate these problems, but despite those adversities, we have to put faith in Christ's promises, that he's going to build his church. So I want us to, to take these kinds of things a little personally. And, and I hope that this is your prayer, that the, that the Spirit would move us to be encouraged, to continue to work, knowing that Christ is, is over all this stuff. I hope that we never become so complacent that we're able to lay back and be comfortable with neglecting God's work and eschewing his presence. You think about them like the temple back then was, was the presence of God. And the Old Testament makes a big deal out of the presence of God being among his people. And, and for them to say... Not only are we having a hard time, so it's just difficult and we can't complete this. They weren't even trying. And that was almost a passive way of saying, we are not concerned about the fact that the presence of God is not among us. Very apathetic. So I hope that 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 can never be said of us. That we are more concerned with building whatever our dream is than what God's plan is for us. So... Today, we're going to go back and, and finish out Haggai. So, um, I didn't look. If we need a Bible, we have some Bibles back here on the bar. Uh, Dale would be happy to hand you one if you go back there. Uh, I didn't look at the page number, so sorry. Haggai's a hard book to find. Dale will be happy to help you find it. <laughs> but it is in the Old Testament. It's a minor prophet. We talked about this last week, how being in the Old Testament, being a minor prophet, not a whole lot of people focus on Haggai or pay attention to it, but I feel like it's just so cool how, how it just really kind of lines up with our circumstances. So, what was that? <laughs> Michael's all about the, the minor prophets. He's like, what are you talking about? So we're in chapter 2. We finished out chapter 1 last week. So there is a gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2, of approximately one month. Uh, and what takes place here in chapter 2 is that they are continuing to work on the temple. They've been working for about a month, led by the Spirit of God, and uh, then this happens. So let's read the first few verses. We'll read to about verse 9. 
In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares who? The Lord of hosts. That is the title in Haggai. Um, so, and I didn't even recognize, some of that's going to sound really familiar, right? We just came out of Hebrews where it talks about this. Didn't even, didn't even plan on making that connection, and I don't really plan on working that connection a whole lot. But this is mentioned in Hebrews, which is kind of cool. Just a side note. So let's look first at the people's response to seeing the work begin. What would you expect their response to be? What do you think that your response would have been having lived in this? 16 years of no progress and then the entire nation, which was approximately 50,000 people came out of Babylon. So if you figure uh, maybe they've had babies, I don't know. Let's say the population was roughly the same because we we're not told otherwise. So about 50,000 people are coming together now to work on this temple. You would think that this would be a time of excitement, a time of joy, because you know, there's a little bit of enthusiasm. The Spirit of the Lord is moving in them. However, as they worked on the new temple, the older community members couldn't help but compare it to the original temple that was made during the reign of King Solomon many years before. The original temple that Solomon built took seven years to complete. You can read about it in, I think, it's 2 Kings 6 is where it talks about Solomon building the temple. Um, and when it was finished, it was one of the most elaborate, embellished structures probably ever created. The whole thing was covered in gold. Like inside out, the whole thing was covered in gold. And it was made out of gigantic stones and cedars. It featured ornate carvings and furnishings, and not to mention the items of historical significance like the Ark of the Covenant. So... It was built during one of the, the most prosperous time in Israel's history, in terms of like materially prosperous times. And it was a reflection of that prosperity that God had given them at that time. So even though this new temple was very early in its development, those who were able to compare it to the older temple immediately saw that it was not measuring up to the past. And God recognizes this because he tells Haggai, go out and address these people regarding this issue. Go out. And, and he tells them in verse, uh, let's see, 3. 
who is left who saw this temple in its former days? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? But he, he encourages them. He's saying, listen, it's not going to be what it was, but you now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. So, he says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Haggai encourages them to keep going, to keep pressing on. God wants to do amazing things through his people, but he expects their participation, their effort in bringing those amazing things to pass. So last week I made a number of comparisons between their circumstances and ours, and I think that it's right to do that with this this idea as well. Just like back then, God has promised wonderful things to the church today, right? Christ has said he's going to build his church. There's going to be people that are going to be saved from every tongue, tribe, nation, all over the world. People who have, at this point, have not heard the gospel. There are going to be people from those places that are going to be a part of the church. He's still building something. So... God is continuing to work in the world right now. But the primary means by which he completes his work is the church. Us. He uses people like us. God expects us to be transformed into the image of Christ. And to own up to this mission that God has. And to carry it out in our own lives. So he doesn't just say, sit back while I stack some bricks together and watch me do this. But instead, come over here and allow yourself to be used and strengthened by me as I build this new kingdom through you. That's, that's the idea. He encourages them. He says, be strong, be strong, be strong three times and work for I am with you. So he's telling them this because he knows that at a later time, he's going to shake the whole world and he's going to gather all things into his glory such that the glory that will be revealed in the future will far surpass anything experienced during the time of Solomon. Though the temple doesn't look like much now to them, God controls all the resources, he says here, and he's going to give them exactly what they need to accomplish his greater plans. So let's, let's move on a little bit further. Two months later, this is verse 10, Haggai addresses the people again with the word of the Lord. They are still working on the temple, but they aren't experiencing prosperity to the extent that they might desire. Uh, things are still really hard, and they are wondering why. So let's read. Verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with the fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any one of those things, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people 
and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive oil have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is, the, this is probably, at least for me, this is the more tricky part of Haggai. It's like, okay, well, what's being said here? So God is using an illustration here to teach them something about holiness. He refers to the law of Moses regarding cleanliness. And he says, if you take, and we can, we can think in these same terms. If you take something that is clean and you take an item that is filthy and the two come together and, and rub together and get into contact, what happens? Does the clean thing make the filthy thing all fresh and clean? No. Or do, does the filthy thing contaminate the clean thing? This is kind of like a common sense, right? I could have illustrated this concept far too well using props up here. So the, the first thing I thought of was like changing diapers because I'm a parent. And like diapers are nasty. Say, I, I, and I have diaper access. So today you're glad that I don't use object lessons. Uh, so obviously, if you spread dirt around, then it's going to get other things dirty. And this doesn't just apply to material items. This is the point that he's making. This doesn't just apply to material items, but also to sin and righteousness. God is saying that the dirty things that he's referring to are the Israelite people. The Israelites had been unfaithful for years. Like we're, even if we're just talking about short term, 16 years, they've been sitting around not doing what he told them to do. But if you take it further out than that, you know, hundreds of years. So they've been unfaithful for a long time. And he is saying that they can't expect that a few months worth of repentance from them is all of a sudden going to make everything all better. They want prosperity. These pro prosperity has been promised to them. Like material prosperity has been promised to the Israelites. And they're looking at those promises and they're saying, where's that? Where's that? We're doing the work now. Where's that? And they want to be rewarded for their good work that they are now doing. But God essentially says, that's not how it works. A couple of good deeds is not enough to make up for a lifetime of sinfulness. If you go around for 16 years making bad decisions and doing evil, then you are going to continue to reap what you have sown, is the idea here. This, this is what we need to understand. This, this, this concept obviously applies to us too. So yeah, he's talking to them, but this is something that we kind of need to realize too. We are made filthy because of our sin. And, and being sorry about it and saying a prayer 
doesn't change the fact that we have sinned and we're still affected by our sins practically. This can, you can kind of use an illustration. If you do drugs for years and then later repent and follow Christ, great, fantastic. Hopefully your life has changed, you're transformed, but you may still suffer from the effects of having been on drugs for a long time. Like you may have problems that you cannot get over because you have affected yourself. And uh, let's see, if you're, if you're abusive in your relationships for 16 years, then all those emotional, maybe even physical wounds may take time to heal if they heal at all. That's kind of the idea. Like, just because, just because you repent doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything is now better. I think that's what is being said here. Just because you come to church or just because you work on the church doesn't mean that everything you touch is going to turn into gold now. Doesn't mean that you are going to be prosperous and that you are going to not face any kind of adversity. We can't fix the fact that we are broken and sinful. We can't make it right. God is the only one who can heal us. The only one who can make us clean. And the only one who can produce good fruit from us. And he makes a point of this with the Israelites. He says, you're filthy. And everything you touch gets dirty. But I am going to bless you. The point there is that we can't, we can't do it. God is the only one who makes something out of us. And I think that that was a big part of the illustration there because they think, we've been doing this for three months now and we're still having trouble with our crops and still having trouble with getting all our stuff together. And God says, that's because this was never about you being good enough. It's about what I'm doing through you. So I hope that we understand that because I think that that, that concept is the same for us. So let's read the last part of this. Um, let's see, verse 20. The word, this is the same day that he just said that last thing about holiness. Um, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. The last time was also the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms, of the nations, and overthrow the chariots of their riders and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is a huge deal. This is, this is probably the, the biggest thing that's going to happen here in Haggai with regard to redemptive history. Because, think back, David. David wanted to build the temple for, for God. And God said, I'm going to build your house. And there's going to be a king on your throne forever. And he's going to reign over all. And good stuff, right? That's great. Great news. But as we read last week in Jeremiah 22, 24, I'm going to go back and read it again just so we kind of get 
the, the weight of this, kind of the flavor of this, because we need to, we need to know that this is significant. So uh, David did have descendants, but it didn't last very, I mean, it didn't last very long, certainly not forever. Uh, his descendants made bad decisions, and, and God had made a covenant. And the thing about a covenant is, if one person breaks it, the other person is allowed to walk away. So, they break the covenant. The, the Jews do, the Israelites. They, they, they totally walk away from God. And when they do that, again, for hundreds of years, it wasn't like, you messed up once and it's over. They messed up for hundreds of years. And God says, we're going to separate now. And in Jeremiah 22, 24, he says to the king at the time in Jerusalem, this is one of David's descendants, As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of of the Chaldeans. I'm going to skip down to verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So the Jews come back during the time of Haggai, and Zerubbabel is one of David's descendants, but they call him a governor. He's not the king because they don't have a king anymore because God took it from them and said, you don't have, this is it. You, I am taking this from you. So they come back, and they're without a temple, they're without prophets, they're without a king. And, and what, of, what of redemptive history? What of these promises to Abraham, to David? How are these things going to happen into eternity if, if they're still broken now? God comes to Zerubbabel, and he says, Today, with you, I'm going to restore this kingship. I'm going to put you back on the throne of David, where in Jeremiah I had said, I'm going to raise up this righteous branch. He's going to come from your descendants. I'm going to put you back. And he's, he, he frames it in really epic terms. He says, I'm going to shake the earth and the heavens. The Messiah is going to shake the earth and heaven. And reign forever. So this is, this is all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus coming and, and that being fulfilled during, because of things that are happening during this time. Because of God restoring the king in Judah and saying, I'm going to remain faithful to my promises for my name's sake. And from your line, your children, the Messiah is going to come. And that's huge. That's huge. For us, that's huge. We, we can appreciate that, right? Because we claim to be Christians and, and we claim to stake everything on Jesus. We say Jesus is better. It's all about Jesus. Well, Jesus came because of a result of these actions that God takes. Because of God saying, I'm going to be faithful. And even though you guys are faithless, even though everything you touch is dirty, I'm going to stay faithful and I'm going to send this Messiah to you. So, the only other thing then that I feel like we have to go back and look at is this question of how in the world is the temple going to have greater glory? 
Because it's talking about how it's nothing like the old temple. They can just look at the foundation and they say, this is not going to work. Like, how bad must it be? Like, it was laying like, like this. I don't know. Like, how do, you, how do you make that judgment just from like a, one month of a seven-year project? Um, but they said, this, this is not going to happen the way that it, it used to be. It's not, it's not going to look like anything. It's, it's going to be real humble. And, and, and how can it ever get better? I think that the one thing that it has over Solomon's temple, over all that gold, over all the carvings, over everything else, that all the, the embellishments and, and just the beauty of the thing itself, the real temple came and visited that temple. Does this make sense? This temple that they were building was going to exist into the time of Christ. And then Christ would actually visit this physical temple. And him coming into that temple was more glory than any kind of physical object could have given it. There's no piece of gold that is worth as much as Christ coming and visiting this temple. So, God continues to use intentional humility to to shake the world. It's kind of the way that he's phrasing it here. He's going to shake the world, build this temple. He's going to shake the world, and he's going to establish the Davidic line. And, and in Hebrews, we talked about how Hebrews said, once again, he's going to shake the world. And the only thing that's going to be left is what, Christ, what stands on Christ, what Christ has built. So for us then, how does, how does this relate to any of that? Well, you could probably go a lot of directions. I feel like you look around here, and definitely one thing that, that happens to me is, is that you, you leave a church like Heritage, which has multiple millions of dollars, and it's, everything's relatively nice. It's not like the prettiest place in the world, but it is nice. They have floors in their bathrooms. Uh, and, and the roof isn't leaking more and more all the time. At least not anymore, I don't think. They had to fix it. And you come in here and you think... This is like nothing. And, and a lot of the other churches that I've visited, compared to them, this is like nothing. So, are we to lament over that? I don't think so. Because we're not building a physical thing. We are building an invisible church Something that God is doing worldwide, not just inside of these crappy walls, is taking place here. And the church that we are preparing is the bride of Christ that is going to be a part of these eternal promises that were given to the Jews. When he talks about all this peace and prosperity, some of this stuff never happened. Like it was only ever temporary, if at all. Those things point to the end, all the way to the end, when Jesus is ruling and reigning over his church. And that's what we're building now. So again, going back to this idea of work on my house, not your house. I, I hope that we, we hear these things 
and, and we see the significance of them for us, and we see how much it preaches to us. How much I am that person who looks at it and says, man, that is nothing. And how much I am that person who says, I'd rather just sit at home because it's nothing. We have to realize that the commission that was given to us is so similar to what was told to them. Christ said, I'm going to build my church and I'm going to do it through people. And he said in the Great Commission, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that I've commanded you. And he says, I'm in charge of all those things. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the same thing that he's saying here in Haggai, that I, all the silver belongs to me, all the gold belongs to me, the entire world belongs to me. Build the temple. I'm with you. Is the same kind of idea that's said in the Great Commission where he says, all authority has been given to me. Go. I'm with you. Do these things. So I hope you feel some kind of kinship now with the people that Haggai spoke to and maybe with Haggai himself and that you can kind of see the comparison here and that you'll never see Haggai or maybe even the Minor Prophets as boring ever again because this stuff, this, this is still what God is doing. And it's really cool to be a part of this. So again, I said this last week, here at the beginning of this year, when we're kind of downtrodden because we're worried about us and about our stuff and about all the things that we lost, maintain the realization, remind yourself, be encouraged, encourage one another with the idea that God is still here. His presence, if we are truly the church, if you are in Christ, then God's presence is with us. And, and that is not something that can be taken from you. So as the church, we need to come together, recognize that Christ, that Christ's presence is still among this church and that we still have a commission that we are being held accountable to the same way they were held accountable to theirs. So during this time, let's respond. Let's pray.